Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9 this morning. We've been in a uh, sermon series on the names of God, the throne names of God from Isaiah chapter 9 uh, verses 1 through 7 or so. And we're looking at these names, uh, wonderful counselor, mighty God, father of eternity, prince of peace. And we've kind of taken name by name over the last several weeks, um, but we're going to take the last name here together this morning, prince of peace. P- perhaps at its outset, we could say, all right, I know what a prince is and I know kind of what peace is. But when we come to this, we have to understand um, what peace is according to God's perspective of peace. Um, God's peace is unlike anything else the world can give. It's an incredible gift to his people through his son. And as as we begin to read this passage, just remind you, this is set in the context where the people of Israel have basically walked away from God. They've they've said, Yahweh, we don't want to worship you. We don't want to honor you. In fact, Isaiah is going to be told by God, don't fear what they fear. Don't do what they do. You regard me as holy. Keep me as distinct and separate in every part of how you live. Even when you watch the people in the culture, your own people, your own culture walk away from you. Isaiah, stay faithful. Stay true. And in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, we're given the promise of Emmanuel that, he, that there will be a child and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. In Isaiah chapter 9, we're given who this Emmanuel would be. And then throughout Isaiah and throughout the rest of the Bible, it tells about his first advent coming in the person of Jesus many, many years ago, not necessarily in December, but many, many years ago, coming to um, Bethlehem and being born in Bethlehem and growing up as a man and living as a man and living a perfect sinless life and then going to a cross to be nailed on that cross to die only to rise again and we await his second advent. What we celebrate today in his first advent, we look forward to with hope in his second advent. And so I want to invite you to read this passage with me. Familiarity is is good for us. Remembering these words is good as we read about the promise of the birth of the Prince of Peace. I invite you to stand with me as we read this morning. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan River. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice while dividing the plunder. For you have shattered, um, you have shattered the oppressive yoke, the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressors, just as you did on the day of Midian. For the trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child will be born. To us, a son will be given and the government will be on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity or Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteous from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And as I was thinking, blowing snow off of my driveway this morning, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The passage Mark read a couple minutes ago, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus, the one who is our wonderful counselor, the one who is our mighty God, the father of eternity and the prince of peace. Thank you, Lord, that today in this day, we remember a savior that has been born for us. For us, God, we, we thank you for the gift of Jesus to this world and to our lives. And now as we study your word, God, would you show us and would you lead us and guide us in how to rightly understand and how to rightly apply the work of the Prince of Peace to our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, peace is one of those loaded words. Um, I was thinking about different things of peace this week, um, especially this time of year, because, you know, you might even see like banners, you got love and peace and joy. It, it's a great word for this time of year because it's something inside of us that we all long for. We, we long for peace. Uh, one of the things I was reminded of this, this in thinking about this, was some of the com contemporary examples of peace. In ancient times, there was like a dove. That was a symbol of peace. There was an olive branch, a symbol of peace. And those, those kind of look back to the story of Noah, where God brought destruction against the whole world, judgment for sin, and he gives his promise of peace through a dove that brings an olive branch. But we also have this very contemporary sign of the peace symbol, which came about in 1958. And it began as a a symbol that was um, going against nuclear armament. You know, it was against building up nuclear warheads and such. And this became quickly a symbol for many things. It went from there in 1958 in England to becoming in the 60s a civil rights symbol. Not only that, it picked up other things along the way. Like in the late 60s, it became one of the symbols of the protest of, of Vietnam in the, in the war that happened over there. Contemporary to that time, you also have different songs arising. You have, for example, the great um, John Lennon song, um, Happy Christmas, War is Over, where he's talking about let there be peace and like the war is over and celebrating this idea of peace in the world. There's also another song that's been recorded by gospel artists and country artists and, and the like, and it's the song, I have to remember it. Oh, it goes, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. You might remember that. I won't sing it for you this morning. Um, there's so many messages about peace within our culture. In fact, that, that John Lennon tune became one of, I, I think I read this morning, is like top 10 of Christmas songs amongst many. You may like it, you may not, doesn't matter. My point is we talk a lot about peace, but what does it mean when it says that the Messiah will be the Prince of Peace? Is it just the cessation of something or is it something much deeper, much better that God is promising? 
the Prince of Peace. This is one of the throne names given to the Messiah. And what's interesting is that in the context of this passage, in verse 7, look with me please, it says of Isaiah 9, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness for that time on and forever. So when you think of peace from God's perspective, from the perspective of the Messiah, we're looking forward to a time in which peace not only is complete, but it is increasing. Now, if you have peace, I don't know how you increase peace. I I don't know how this kingdom just continues to go and flourish and build. It's beyond, to much extent, it's beyond my comprehension to think, man, if we had a world where there was peace and there's shalom, and then it just increases and it increases and it increases and increases, that's the picture that we're given of Christ's second advent and the millennial kingdom and everything that flows from that time. The peace that God talks about is unlike the peace we experience many times today. Because we think of of it in a very temporal sense. We think of it in a very maybe two-dimensional or three-dimensional sense. And God is thinking on a whole different level. The phrase Prince of Peace is made up of two Hebrew words. The first one is this. It's sar. I forgot to put the, um, the, the English in here for you, but that's, that's a, um, a sar. You read right to left. It's an S-A-R is how you would um, write that if you're writing notes. And it means chieftain, priest, or pre, sorry, chieftain, chief, ruler, official, captain, or prince. It has this idea in some context of, of a military figure and in one who rules and who who reigns with some degree of authority or some degree of power. That's kind of what's behind the idea of this word tsar. This word is compounded with another word. By the way, this is also used, obviously, in Isaiah 9 to talk about a, a, a messianic figure, one who would rule and one who would reign over the people. It's a compound. Um, Prince of Peace is a compound of sar plus the word shalom. It was interesting. I was in Hebrew at the time uh, years ago, and I was driving in Cleveland, and we, were, we went to a park to visit a friend, and there was this word shalom outside, but it didn't have any of the, the extra like dots and stuff, and I was trying to figure out what word it was. I was so confused. I finally figured out it was shalom. That's shalom up at the top. Shalom means completeness. It means soundness. It means welfare. You can translate it peace. All right. That's the kind of the basic definition or the basic gloss of this word. In Hebrew, it has two different senses though. It has the first is the secular sense. And it means in the secular sense, well-being, prosperity, or bodily health. So you might think of peace as being like, oh man, I have peace with my body. It's not, you know, revolting from the vast amounts of fatty food I ate last week. Or you might say that I, I have well-being or prosperity within my life. It, I, it's, it's peaceful. I have what I need. I, I don't have what I don't need. My family is content and secure. You can have the idea with this, with this sense of mind that, that, that it's a condition of being at ease or satisfied or fulfilled. That's one aspect of the secular sense of shalom. But there's a second sense of shalom that's going on here, especially as it relates to the Messiah being promised as a prince of peace. Here's the religious sense of this word. It means an essential part of Yahweh's plan of salvation through renewed relationship. In fact, one scholar says, all peace comes from him and he is the foundation of 
peace. So when we look at this just at a basic level, it's this idea of prosperity or ease or being satisfied or being fulfilled. That's at its basic level. But when we look at it from the promises of God, it's so much deeper because it has to do with being reconciled, big word, we'll define it in a minute, reconciled in relationship with the God from whom we have had relationship broken. And that's from God's perspective. When it says that the Messiah is the Prince of Peace, it means that he's coming in to bring shalom. In other words, he's coming in to restore relationship with people who were separated from him because of sin. That's a much deeper, deeper idea and understanding of peace. Sometimes peace, like when you're, if you're a parent or, and you have young kids and it's like really loud, you're like, man, I just want some peace and quiet. You just want it to be like that. <laughs> Hit save, parents, that may not last <laughs> throughout a fun day. You may just want peace and quiet. But what God wants when he talks about peace is renewed relationship. And he wants it with you and he wants it with me. That's the idea behind peace here. The thing is, is we often settle for this. If I just have this well-being, prosperity, bodily health, ease of life, ah, being fulfilled, we think that's the end, but it's not. This is from God's perspective. All peace comes from him because he himself is the foundation of peace. And in fact, because our relationship was corrupted with Yahweh at the fall, mankind cannot have any peace unless God steps in through his redemptive initiative in our life through Jesus. We're going to look at this word peace for the next few moments here. We see it many times in the Bible. For example, um, the high priest is instructed in number six. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you his peace. Peace is something that comes from God. We find that in the scripture. Um, it's God who gives peace. And, and, and peace describes the state or condition of a renewed relationship with God. And the coming of the king of peace is, is, it's highlighted throughout the scriptures. But one of the places that scripture highlights it, that's may, maybe kind of different for a Christmas message, is Zechariah chapter 9. It says here in Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On the colt, on the foal of a donkey. Now I bring this up. It's going to talk about peace in the next verse. I bring this up because this is a prophecy that foreshadows, that, that, that Jesus fulfills when he comes into Jerusalem during that last week of his life. He comes in. We call it Palm Sunday. And he comes in riding on a donkey. It's interesting. It's a donkey, not a horse. The ancient rabbis actually believed that... Um, they looked at the, the different pictures of Messiah, the, the ruling, conquering king, the promise of an infant, and all these things. They, they look at these things, and one scholar says that they see, um, rather than seeing one Messiah with two comings, they see two possible scenarios of Messiah's arrival. If Israel's unworthy, Messiah would come on a donkey. If worthy, then on a white horse. 
That's, not, that's commentary from Jewish rabbis. But it gives us a window into how the ancient rabbis looked at this. He comes on a donkey and it's like, hmm, we're not worthy is how the ancient rabbis would have then thought. But we have at this time several people saying, Jesus, this miracle worker, this, 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 wonder, uh, this wondrous person who's bringing healing, who is speaking about the kingdom of God, who is teaching with authority like we've not ever seen before. Some of these people believed he was the Messiah and they thought he is coming to rule and reign. They, they put him on a horse. They bring him in like a king. But his aspect of kingdom at that moment was different than their understanding, which is why after the death of Jesus, everybody's going, what's going on? And it's why they had such a hard time believing after he was even raised. In fact, one of his own disciples, he believed because he saw with his own two eyes and he touched with his hands that this Jesus really did rise from the grave. When we look at Zechariah here, Jesus fulfills this verse 9 in his first coming. But then we come to a second passage here that talks about the, um, in the next verse, talks about the, the coming king. He says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and the river and to the ends of the earth. So we're getting a similar picture to what Isaiah is happening, that there's going to be a rule and a kingdom that will have no end. It's going to be complete. It's going to be done. It's going to be dominant. So we have to put these two pictures together. What does it mean that Jesus comes, but he comes, but there's still more that he's going to do? It's been interesting to read the Isaiah passage for me set in the context of studying Daniel and Revelation over the last six to nine months together as a church family because we get all these prophecies. We're about ready to go into talking about the millennial reign of Christ. When Jesus Christ returns to this earth and he rules and reigns literally from Jerusalem for a thousand year period. And that won't be the end. It will continue then to increase after the final judgments are all done. And there's a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. We're going to study heaven for a brief moment in January. We're going to see that there's going to be a time where, where all pain and sorrow and grief are all done away with because the former things have passed away and God has made everything new. We, we look at this work of Jesus, the one who is the Prince of Peace. He comes to bring peace in a very particular way through his first coming and then to bring it in an ultimate way in the second coming. But it's not just peace for the Jewish people. It's peace for the nations. It's peace for all people who trust him. That's who can enter and who can experience this gift of peace. My, my point in all of this to bring us back to talking about peace is we often understand peace to be a very temporal thing. And there is a component to that. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the peace that Jesus wants to give and the peace that Jesus promises to his followers is a peace that will, huh, it will never end. It will never end because his reign and his dominion and his kingdom shall have no end. Now, there's two ways that we often pursue peace. One is we will try to control our circumstances as best we can. 
We'll, we'll try and manage things. We'll try and get rid of things that we need to get rid of. We'll try to pursue the right things. We'll, 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 we'll try and engage with people who maybe are causing us a lack of peace. That's one way. We can do it in our own strength or we can do it in the strength that God gives. And when we talk about peace, the only way to experience peace is to go to the king of peace or the prince of peace himself to receive these things. I I remind you, the context of Isaiah points us forward to this time of restoration, this time of, of millennial reign and future glory. But first, God had to do something to make it possible for us to experience that. I love the way that the New Testament talks about peace. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing and he says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands. Now this might get a little confusing right here. What he's doing is he's saying, I'm talking to you Gentiles, you people who did not grow up within the Jewish framework of Jesus. I want to talk to you because some people think that you're far off. They think that you have to become Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus, in order to be a part of the kingdom. And he's saying to you Gentiles, to those who are uncircumcised, it's another way of contrasting the Jew and the Gentile. He's, he's saying, I want you to remember Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's talking to Gentiles specifically in this, in this little phrase here. And he's saying, you were without hope. You had nothing. Actually, and at certain parts, he's going to remind the, the Jewish people, by the way, You didn't come in just because of your covenant with Abraham. You've got to come to me. But he's he's focusing on them here. You were separated from Christ. He says this in the next verse. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice the phrase brought near. We talked about peace has to do with relationship. When we look at a phrase brought near, it's this idea of pulling your kid close to you and saying, hey, how's it going? When, you, when you've been separated by distance, or maybe you've been on a trip and you come home and you see someone you love, or you see someone you like, and you go up and you give them a big hug, you're brought near. Not just in a spatial sense, but you're brought near in, in an even deeper relational sense. How are people brought near according to God? By the blood of Christ. There is no way to experience nearness, of God, nearness with God without the blood of Jesus. That's why the first advent had to happen. Romans puts it this way. When we were lost in our trespasses and sins, God gave himself for us. His blood justifies us. Even more, it says in another passage, we are saved by his life. Notice what it says here. You're brought near by the blood of Christ. You're not brought near by coming to church on Christmas Day, although power to you, you made it in, right? Um, You're not brought near by taking communion. You're not brought near by being baptized. You're brought near through one thing alone. It's not your works. It's not your intellect. It's the fact that you've come to an end of yourself and you've said, Lord Jesus, the only thing that's going to save me is your blood to cover my sin. 
and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's the only way that we're brought near. But notice, we're brought near. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ because he's talking to believers here. He says, for he himself is our peace. Notice he, did, he does not say, your situation is now peaceful. <laughs> he, he doesn't say, now you have everything that you need in a secular sense of shalom. It says, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles who, who are struggling in this relationship. He says, you know what makes you one? It's not whether you're both circumcised or whether you both eat kosher or whether you both observe Shabbat in the same way. He says, the one, the one who makes us one is the one who is our peace. And he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I highlighted I highlight hostility for you here because I want you to see the, the difference between hostility and being brought near. Hostility has to do with a lack of shalom. It's this clanging back and forth. It's like watching maybe two um, mountain goats just jockey back and forth for space and for resources. He says, no, 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 you, you want to experience peace? You want to experience a, a lack of hostility? There's only one way, by the blood of Christ. Because Christ is our peace. He goes on by saying, by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Do, do you see how much God hates hostility? This phrase, killing hostility. From God's perspective, he's crazy about you. From God's perspective, he doesn't want you to be far off. He wants to bring you near. But the only way he can bring you near is when you and I, we come, we've come to the end of ourselves and say, God, I can't earn my way to you. He goes, absolutely, that's what I've been trying to tell you all along. Come near so that I can make you holy. Come near so that I can make you my child. Come near so I can be your peace. Not only that, come near so that I can be peace who works and lives his life, this is God saying, who works and lives his life through you and through me so that we can bring peace in small moments to this earth. The, the, the greatest offense against peace is people walking in hostility to God. When we look at the whole world, when we look at the, the angst, you could go home and you could read a, a paper today on Christmas Day and you'd probably still read about wars and you'd probably still read about conflicts and you'd probably still read about the latest tabloid of whoever did what to whomever and maybe it's true. You could go read that. But what Jesus wants to give us and what Jesus wants to live his life through us to, to accomplish is to bring peace to the earth. Now, we're not going to bring peace in its fullness here because as we've read the book of Revelation, there's a whole lot of not peace coming because there's a whole lot of people who are hardened and, and just against God in so many ways. But this is the message God wants us to bring to an earth that's experiencing this conflict. He wants us to bring the message of peace. And the only way that we'll be at peace with each other, the only way that we'll be at peace with God is when we come to him in dependence. There's a great pattern here, a great picture of people without hope and without God being brought near to the Father. This idea of reconciled, I told you we'd define that. 
to reconcile means to take um, or to experience an exchange of hostility for friendship. It's to, it's to exchange hostility for friendship. God wants to kill the hostility between him and you, and he wants to be your friend. He also wants to be, you know, don't, don't take that and just say, hey, now we're just, we're friends. You are, he's also God. You get it. There's the respect and, and, and fear and awe and love and all these things in our relationship with God, but he wants to bring us near. So the first thing is how do we experience peace in this life? We experience peace first and foremost by having a reconciled relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. And if you haven't received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you can find peace with God today. That's, that's, that's real, tangible, experiential peace. And that kind of peace leads to another kind of peace that believers can experience. And the book of Philippians Paul writes several things. Love the book of Philippians. It's just an encouragement. Mind you, he's writing this from prison. So he's writing this prison letter and he says this to his, um, his, to his friends in Philippi, up in the northern part of Greece. He says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you have learned and heard and received in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Here he's talking about peace again. And like I said, he's, he's writing from a jail cell. Um, years ago, I was on a, a trip with uh, the college I was going to school with. We were in Greece. We're standing before what is the traditional jail cell. It's not that big, if it's the one. It's not that big. He's down kind of in this lower part. And you can just imagine him celebrating, singing to the Lord. You can imagine him sharing the good news of Jesus from behind bars. And he writes to these people in Philippi and he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. How do we experience peace in a practical sense in this life? First comes through, our, through faith in Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us. But secondly, there's an active way that you and I can experience peace in a very tangible way today. And the first way to begin to practice this is to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord Always, and just like he wants to put a stamp on it, he wants to say, I will say it again, rejoice. This verse has meant so much to me and my wife over the years. There's been times where I've suffered pretty bad anxiety. It usually happens on vacation. Like I leave on vacation and like five days later, I have a panic attack or something like that. And there's been moments where I go, God, where? I need peace. Rejoice in the Lord always has been a theme for us throughout the years. There's good things doctors can do. There's good things that friends can do, but there's nothing like what the Lord can do. Rejoice in the Lord always. He says, I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then he says this, the Lord is at hand. Your translation might say the Lord is near. 
Uh, I think that's the NIV. That's the way we memorize it. The Lord is near. Peace is, is, is experienced practically by remembering, wait, this is for Paul, I'm behind a cell bar. Guess what? God is still with me. You're stuck at home today because you can't dig out of your front um, driveway. God is with you. You're, you're walking through a bad medical diagnosis. Guess what? God is with you. You're wondering, how are we going to make ends meet? Guess what? God is with you. He is your peace. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a practice of saying, God, you are in control. God, no matter what comes, I can rest in you. The Lord is near. And then he says, don't be anxious about, every, about anything. That word for anxious has to do with like thinking over things and thinking over them and thinking over them. It, it's this, 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 this um, I think it's the Greek word merimnao, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be mistaken. But it has this idea of, of just muttering over things all the time and going, oh, but what about, oh, but what about, oh, what about? He says, don't be anxious. <laughs> Start praising. <laughs> Don't be anxious about everything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Prayer is this action of going to God. And God says, I want you to come pray because you're my child. Step into my throne room. Come confidently because you can because of Christ. Come in. Don't be anxious in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. That's a hard one for me sometimes. To be thankful for the thing that I'm in. To be thankful for the experience. God, I'm experiencing anxiety today but I'm going to rejoice. But I'm going to have thanksgiving, God, because you've been good to me. You've saved me. You've redeemed me. God, you have stepped in when I was down. And God, I remember this time, and I remember this time, and I remember this time that you met me there. Maybe that's you today. Maybe as part of a practice of peace in your life, you need to begin rejoicing. You need to begin thanksgiving. Some days, I've probably told you this before, some days when it's just a rough day for one reason or another, I'll just come in here, I'll shut my office door, I'll sit down at the piano, and I'll start to sing, because sometimes I just need to put the right words, and there's nothing magical about the words, but I need to put words of faith, and words of hope, and words of truth on my lips, because when I focus on that, a lot of things begin to settle in the light of who God is, because he is near. Everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your request known to God. God wants to hear from you. No matter what you're facing today, God wants to hear from you. He says, in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Um, you, may, you and I might think we've got this peace figured out. If I do this plus this, I'll have peace. <laughs> or, or we think, oh man, I have peace. And then we're, we're faced with another insurmountable odd. God's peace surpasses our understanding. Which just means, I, in part, God is never tired of saying, I'm with you. He's never tired of saying, I'm enough for you. He's never tired of saying, let's go. We can walk this path together. It surpasses all understanding. He uses military language here. He will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A lot of the battle for what we face happens in our mind. It happens on what we dwell on. And, and he says, the, the peace of God, which surpasses your understanding, which guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This idea of guarding, you can think Paul is in prison and he's got Roman soldiers guarding him and you don't get past a Roman soldier. 
The, the, the word here suggests that there's, there, there's, a, there's a battle line of defense that God is working on our behalf to be our Prince of Peace in the moment that we're experiencing. And it comes largely to our minds, to our hearts. And he gives them this final warning or this final encouragement. It's not a warning, it's an encouragement. Finally, my brothers, whatever's true, honorable, pure, just, uh, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy, think on these things. Whatever you have heard and received and learned about in me and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God wants to be our Prince of Peace. He wants to be in a salvation way. He wants to reconcile the relationship with us. But friend, God wants you to experience peace today. Peace with him, but he wants you to experience peace in your heart and your mind. The practice of peace is going to God and saying, God, here it is. And resting in his care. One scholar writes, Paul insists that we must give thanks in everything, in laughter and in tears and sorrows and in joys alike, which implies two things. It implies gratitude and also perfect submission to the will of God. Paul gives us a picture of, you know, I don't know the way this is going to turn out for me, but I trust God's will because I'm at peace with him, because he's near, because he meets me here. The song I quoted at the beginning, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. I'd like to slightly modify those lyrics if I might. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with him. Because if it rests on me, we're doomed. <laughs> we're absolutely doomed. But God wants to work his life. He wants to live his life through you and through me so that we can live at peace. We can experience the peace of his presence and also so that we can live a life of peace to a world that is bent on conflict because they're bent in opposition to God. The root cause of the world's problems are, are, are not political or social. The root cause is their relationship with God has been fractured and broken. And the only thing that can lead to true peace and shalom in the world in its ultimate sense is a restored relationship with God. I don't know where you're at today, but I invite you to consider making Jesus the Lord of your life and experiencing the peace that only comes through him. If you're a follower of Jesus already here today, I invite you as Jesus has become your savior and maybe he's become your Lord, let him become your life as well. Let him become one who is not far off, but one who is very present because he is with you. He is with you to the end of the age, Jesus promises. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.